friends, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and today I am so grateful, or I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. I am honored to be joined by Paul Miller, who has recently authored the brand new book called The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And this is an idea that we have talked about before on the podcast. And so I will link to some of the the episodes in the past that we've covered in case you're interested in learning more about this. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do want to let you know about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. And today's topic of Christian nationalism and intersecting our our faith as uh, followers of Jesus for those of us who are followers of Jesus and intersecting that with our with our nation as well. And what is our, our relationship with our nation and what what should that look like for followers of Jesus? Now, some of the things that inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast around some of these ideas. The first thing is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And around Christian nationalism can be a very difficult conversation to have with people. For, for a variety of different reasons, which we're going to get into um, in Paul's and I's conversation later. But what we want to do here is we want to create a place to where we can disagree, that we don't have to see eye to eye on everything, but we don't have to disrespect each other. We can still have respectful dialogue and disagree. The other one is this, is that we want to uh, create a place or... <laughs> create a place to have difficult conversations. I already said that. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them completely. And maybe if you find yourself resisting some of the ideas that Paul and I discuss in here, I would just ask you to pause and maybe just consider why am I experiencing resistance to this idea? What in me makes me uncomfortable? about this idea and to digging and learning. And again, you don't have to agree with us, but I would just ask you to pay attention to that resistance. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of whether that or not, that is something serious or it's something trivial. And the last thing is this, is that we want to become the person who was there for us or the person that we wish that we had for the people that we care about the most to help out the people in our lot in our lives that we love that we care for that maybe we feel a sense of responsibility to especially as it pertains to the next generation to the generation who is coming after this and that we are able to think through some of these things not because we have all the answers for the next generation but that we can help guide them and help them engage in in a lot of these ideas as well and so that's a lot of what we do here on the podcast and if you want to continue to keep up with us and some of the things that i am currently learning from and thinking about the best way to keep up with me is by subscribing to my newsletter which is in the show notes to where i just give you a bunch of links to things that i am currently learning from as well so if you're looking for good books or podcasts or articles or youtube videos or documentaries or videos or movies or tv shows or whatever it is you can find all of my recommendations by subscribing to the newsletter and you will not miss any of them. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Paul and then we will jump right into my conversation with him. So Dr. Paul Miller is a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He serves as a co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration in the MS. FS program. He is also a senior fellow with SCOW Croft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Dr. Miller previously served in the United States Army, including a tour in Afghanistan as an analyst with the CIA and as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. And without any further wait, here is our conversation.
Well, Paul, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Caleb, thanks so much for having me on your show. Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, anytime that I that I talk with somebody who has created like a work of art, and, and in this case, it's your book, The Religion of American Greatness, I love hearing the story behind it of what made you want to write this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I've always been drawn to political theory, uh, studied it as an undergraduate, and I've always sort of wanted to write political theory, but I didn't know what it would be about. Around came 2016, and I realized, having grown up on the political right, that I, I no longer understood it. I kind of looked around me, and I there's just a whole a lot about my country that I felt I did not understand. And so I went about reading a lot uh, of American history and reading a lot of political theory, kind of made me see a few things in a new light. And this book emerged from that long process of reflection. Um, it's not about, the book is not about Donald Trump. There's one chapter out of uh, 10 or 11 that really addresses Trump. But yeah, that that experience catalyzed my thinking that led to this book, which is a broader reflection on Christianity and American public life. Hmm. Do you remember some of the things that you saw that just made you like start questioning or start getting curious about um, just about Christian nationalism and some of the ideas in the book? In uh, November of 2015, ISIS attacked a club in Paris, murdered 100 people. And I thought, this was during the early days of the 2016 election, I thought, okay, this is the event that will help uh, bring to the fore the most responsible candidates who know how to respond to an international crisis. Famously, this is when Trump said, we need to shut down Muslim immigration in the United States. And he said, we need to murder terrorists' wives and children. Hmm. I was so shocked and appalled by that. But what happened is Trump's poll numbers went up, not down. And that's when I took a step back and I thought, what is going on? How can, a, how can somebody advocate murdering women and children and their poll numbers grow go up, not down? That's when I thought, I just don't understand this. I need to dig deeper into understanding America, understanding the American right and understanding American nationalism. The Christianity part came later because I understood as I dug into this, American nationalism is always entwined with the words, the rhetoric, the symbols of Christianity, because that's our majority religion. And anytime you want to talk about traditional notions of American identity, Christianity is the elephant in the room. And so that bit came a bit later in my research, but initially it was just, you know, what is going on here? And how do we understand American nationalism? Hmm. Yeah, take me back to that process. What were some of the like what you do to understand, like you mentioned, understanding America's history as well. So like what were some of the events that you looked at? What were some of the things that surprised you maybe in that or or that you learned anew or, or in a fresh way? So there's a there's an earlier version of this book that's about a third longer, about 100, 150 pages longer. Uh, I had to cut quite a bit uh, to get it to the published version. And I and I kind of answered some of that question in some of the, uh, the, the apocrypha, the disappeared text. Um, where I kind of walk through stages of, of American history and trace where some of these ideas come from. And I was surprised by how far back it goes, right? So American nationalism and and what I'm calling Christian nationalism, it ain't new. Trump certainly didn't invent it. It predates him. It predates Reagan, predates, you know, uh, what I, you know, I was, I was very surprised to find a recruiting pamphlet for English colonists to come to Virginia in the year 1617, in which it said, come build God's temple in the new world. Uh, that gives you a sense of how far back and how deep yeah. this idea goes that our political project in North America is a religious project and that our Christian commitments uh, should give us a, a kind of a religious obligation to live out a certain way in this land. And that's, you know, a, a foreshadowing, an early version of what I think is later appropriately called Christian nationalism. And you can see it also in the debates uh, a couple of decades later in the 1630s, 1640s, between John Cotton and Roger Williams. John Cotton is defending the idea of a Christian commonwealth that is in force through exile, through imprisonment, and even through execution. And Roger Williams is the one saying, no, 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 we need to respect liberty of conscience. 
and he gets exiled for his trouble. Um, these are debates about the nature of their political project in the Massachusetts Bay Colony that carried over decade after decade, century after century, about what is the relationship between Christianity and and, and our American identity. Hmm. Are there are there any good examples that you've seen throughout history that have handled this this tension of you know nationalism and Christianity and Christian nationalism? I think that there are examples um, of good uh, of of good Christian engagement in the public square. I just mentioned Roger Williams. Roger Williams advocated for freedom of conscience, religious freedom, disestablishment. He also had a better record in dealing with Native Americans than anybody else in his day uh, and um, opposed uh, the slave trade as well. So like there's a guy who's a Christian and uses Christian principles, I think in mostly the right ways. Um, the American founders, it's a complicated story. Many of them were professing Christians, some were not. Uh, many of them were influenced more by the Enlightenment than by the Bible, but of course the Bible was influential. And they settled on the First Amendment, which I think is a, it reflects Enlightenment principles. I also think it does reflect Christian principles, and it underlies so much of the American experiment. Uh, there was a debate about religious freedom in its day. You know, when Virginia passed its uh, laws on religious toleration, uh, that Jefferson and Madison proposed, it was not immediately popular. And if if memory serves, I think, um, uh, I, I want to say that Washington actually opposed it as a Virginian, but I, don't quote me on that because I, I yeah. need to go back and <laughs> check that. But there were, there were Christians in Virginia who didn't like the idea of religious freedom because it threatened the Anglican and Episcopal establishment of the day. Virginia at the time was throwing Baptists in prison for preaching without a license. And the Anglicans wanted to keep doing that. They wanted to maintain their monopoly on religious power in the Commonwealth. I'm sitting here in Virginia, by the way. So, uh, yeah, there's a bit of Virginia history. And I'm a Baptist, too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think that the Christians who advocated for the Constitution and the First Amendment were a good example of Christian engagement in politics. And we can fast forward and talk about abolitionists. We can talk about um, some, not all of what came later in the 19th century in the social gospel movement. There were some problems with its theology. There were some problems with its political economy. But look, the idea of applying Christianity to ameliorate the ills of society was a good motivating idea. I think, again, they got some things wrong. Prohibition was a dumb idea. Uh, 20th century, hey, look, we just got Dobbs. I mean, the pro-life cause is fantastic. And I think it's a good example of good, healthy Christian public engagement in the public square that we need to follow up now with effective care for mothers in crisis pregnancy, care for single mothers, care for families, for children, for orphans. The pro-life cause is bigger than Dobbs, uh, and it should continue. So I could go on, but there are many examples of good Christian public engagement. Yeah, you and and even in that, um, just what came to mind is that Christianity can have a has a complex relationship with America as well. Just what yeah. you were mentioning, of I think it's easy to think all the founding fathers were Christians and they were founded um, for for this nation being you know one nation under God, all of that stuff. Can you tease out like a little bit more of the complexity? Because I think sometimes we can just paint it as like a very simple narrative, like yep, everybody was a Christian. Let's get back to you know how it was you know in the early days, all of that. Yeah, there's a lot, books and books and books about how Christian the founders were or weren't. You've got to understand that in its day, Christianity was the parameters of political correctness. So everybody kind of had to say they were a Christian because you could be ostracized. You could be thrown out of polite society. You could lose your career and your job if you were too openly against Christianity. Uh, Thomas Paine did come out essentially as an atheist uh, later on and lost favor with a lot of Americans in his day because of that. And so those who would be skeptics were often quiet about it. So Thomas Jefferson, I think was pretty plainly not an Orthodox Christian. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I think would be better described as a deist. Uh, and um, John Adams, was a Congregationalist throughout his life, but seems to have gravitated towards a Unitarianism by the end of his life. So it's a spectrum of heterodox opinions. And then you have people, I think like, I want to say Roger Sherman, uh, was pretty plainly an Orthodox Christian. 
I think you can even put George Washington in that camp. I, I, you know, there's debates because he didn't take communion and all that. But the the biography by uh, Chernow has several pages about Washington's religious life and concludes that he was a pretty conventional Christian, N not what we would maybe call an evangelical. He, he didn't, it, there was no popular passion to his piety, but he attended church very regularly uh, and was known as a prayerful man and clearly recognized the, the impact of providence on human affairs. So he's, I think you can call him a Christian. So there's a spectrum of belief by the founders. They were also very influenced by the enlightenment of the day uh, by John Locke, and I think even more by uh, Montesquieu. But look, even the enlightenment was itself in the Anglo-American world, not hostile to religion and sometimes compatible with it. Different question on the continent. The French enlightenment was more hostile to the enlightenment. But when you look at uh, what, they, what they called republicanism, we might call classical liberalism. I think that they probably saw a compatibility. They actually talked quite extensively about the compatibility between religious morality and Republican virtue. The way I'd say it is that the golden rule, do unto others, has a political corollary, which is do unto others in the po political square. Uh, I recognize your equality as a citizen under law, and you recognize my equality as a citizen under law. And we call that republicanism, the rule of law and democracy. And so there is a fundamental uh, consistency between kind of that biblical, between the golden rule and a biblical ethic and the kind of the political theology that underlies democracy. Um, so I think that that's all true. It's a little bit different from saying we're a Christian nation. Christianity is necessary to the American experiment. We have to mandate or enforce Christianity. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's clearly an influence of Christianity on American history and American identity, but we need to be careful in how we characterize that. Yeah. And can you tease out, you know, and, and we've talked about it a little bit, but the difference between like just nationalism and then Christian nationalism, and then also what does it, what does healthy political engagement look like also? I think it's best to start by talking about patriotism. Yeah. Uh, I'm happy to describe myself as an American patriot. I love America. I served in uniform. I'm a veteran, served in the war in Afghanistan, worked for our government for a decade before I went to teaching. I think patriotism is a virtue. C.S. Lewis talks in his book on the four loves about how it's very normal and natural to have affection for your home yeah. and for what is what is familiar and close. And it, it, if you don't, you're an ingrate, right? <laughs> it, it is a, it's the sin of ingratitude if you don't have special affection and loyalty for where you came from. So I think that we should have that kind of instinctive, pre-rational uh, attachment to uh, to kin and country. Um, nationalism isn't that. Nationalism is actually an argument about how you define your country. Right? A patriot says, I'm going to love my country as it is and what it is, and actually hope for it to be better and work for it to be better. But a nationalist has a very specific conception of what makes his country his country. Uh, nationalism defines national identity by reference to a cultural heritage. Uh, the analogy I often use is a checkerboard. A nationalist looks at the world and tries to draw the map of the world's cultures. And to the nationalist, it looks like a checkerboard hmm. with, with easily demarcated lines between each culture so that you can say with confidence that that thing over there, that's the essence of Frenchness. It is French culture. And that thing over there on the other square is the essence of Germanness, German culture, German identity. And there's a very clear dividing line between the two of them. And once the nationalist has drawn that line, then they simply say each square on that checkerboard gets its own government. And the role of the government to a nationalist is to maintain and uphold their cultural identity. So the French government has to defend not just French territory, but Frenchness, the idea of being French and the, and the German government similarly and so forth. That's nationalism broadly, and mm -hmm. it's nationalism globally. That's nationalism as has been understood and practiced for a couple of hundred years. And so the nationalist looks at America and says, what defines American-ness? And they think primarily not, the first thing they refer to is not the American creed, constitution, or declaration, but rather American culture. And that's where Christianity comes in. Because Christianity is the one thing that has uh, unified nearly all Americans since the beginning because we've lacked a common ethnicity, a common race, a common history or story uh, of where we came from. 
And so Christianity seems to be the glue that binds a disparate people together. And that's why in America, nationalism is almost always a Christian nationalism. The only other version is white nationalism. Uh, and there is an unfortunate relationship there that we can maybe tease out a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, so I hope that helps clarify a little bit about the difference between patriotism, yeah. nationalism, and why Christianity comes to play in American nationalism. Uh, as a patriot, somebody asks me, what does it mean to be an American? I'm going to talk about the American creed, the declaration, the constitution. I'm going to talk about American history as well. You know, the story of living up to our creed, but to the nationalist, the first thing they say, they talk about American culture and, and our heritage which again is always informed by uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, I mean, you, you talk about it a little bit, but can you kind of tease out some of that culture of like, what, what might you hear whenever someone is describing that, that type of culture? So um, let me try to think of an example here. Yeah. Rich, Rich, Rich Lowry in his book uh, called the case for nationalism. He points to two main sources of American national identity. Uh, our British, or I think he actually says our English forebears, and uh, our Christian heritage. And he's got a whole chapter on the Bible. And he says that these are the two fonts from which our Christian, our Judeo-Christian, uh, our, our Anglo-Protestant heritage comes from. And by the way, that phrase Anglo-Protestant comes from Samuel Huntington, who's another scholarly advocate for this kind of nationalism. Um, you know, so what what do they mean? They They mean the culture, the habits, the tastes of 18th century Britain as it was passed to the American founders and became a template for elite American culture up until the 1960s. I do stress the elite American culture because I don't think it's fair to say that that was ever the defining culture for African Americans, for non-European Americans, even for non-Christian Americans. They were obviously a minority, but uh, there were other strands and streams of American culture that don't fit into that Anglo-Protestant mold. It's always been true. Mm -hmm. that, I think, that I think Lowry and others don't take full advantage of, don't take full account of. Um, am I answering your question? Mm -hmm. I feel like you're yep. asking for, yeah, okay. Yep. Um, and so, so they would point to schooling, right? For 150 years, public schools were Protestant schools. Mm -hmm. Public schools taught the Bible, not just as a historical text, but as the truth. And public schools led prayers, and that was accepted as normal because we were a Christian people and we're a Christian nation and our public school should reflect our Christian identity and, and so forth. Um, that I think you often hear people on the right say that we should get back to that and we should reintroduce the Bible and reintroduce school prayer. Uh, and I think there's clear problems with that. And if you want to go there, we can yeah. go there. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good specific example of a, a, a thing that nationalists think define American identity and they want to get back to yeah, and let's let's go there. Just what you were saying of uh, what what could be the problem with that? Yeah, and this gets a little bit complicated because there's a lot of Christians that think public schools are are deteriorating, which is a true statement. They're teaching people terrible things. What what's wrong with the idea of trying to get our schools back and? Part of getting our schools back to them means getting the Bible back in schools, getting prayer back in schools. Like, wasn't schooling better in those days? Okay, so let me affirm that our public schools are terrible <laughs> and that we need to do something to get them back. I don't think that means uh, prayer and, and, and Bible study mm -hmm. in public schools. And 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 here's why. And, and stay with me. This is a bit of a an argument. Yeah. No, number one, we should keep in mind that it was not actually um, it, when we had Protestant schools, there was a problem with it. It was, in fact, exclusionary. The, the, the schools were Protestant because Americans were anti-Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, Anti-Catholic bigotry informed an enormous amount of American history, again, clear up to the 1960s. I mean, just look at the 1960 presidential election. Um, and so we can't simply readopt the old model without understanding that it was bigoted. It was bigoted against Catholics. Uh, tell me today, if we're going to reintroduce school prayer and, and, the, and the Bible, which version of the Bible you want to teach in the schools? <laughs> is it the Protestant Bible or is it the Catholic Bible? Or is it the Coptic Bible or, you know, what have you? Yeah. Uh, and w which denomination's prayers will you pray? Okay, so there's one thing. Um, 
I, I think that we need to be aware that uh, there's a very long history around the world of governments manipulating and abusing religious sentiment for their own political ends. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that public school prayer, public Bible reading leads too easily in that direction where you're teaching people, <clears throat> you're allowing the government to teach people about religion and to associate religion with the state. When that happens, the church loses its independence, loses its prophetic witness, loses, excuse me, loses its ability to uh, hold the government up, to critique it, to um, hold it to account for any of its abuses or oppressions. There's a reason why the, the white church uh, did not play a significant role in rebuking the American government for slavery or segregation uh, or Jim Crow for 150 or more years. Yes, there were some individual white Christians who did, perhaps some northern white churches did, but by and large, white American Christians did not uh, um, lead the argument. Uh, I, I'd say, okay, let me amend that. I think that there was a more clear white Christian movement for abolitionism in the North, but not for desegregation, not against Jim Crow or, uh, or segregation. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the other problem with uh, public Bible reading, public schools, leading prayers, is that you're, the church is abdicating its role. Hmm. Uh, I understand from the Bible that Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. And I think what that means is he's giving authority to the church exclusively to represent him on earth. It is the church's role and the church's prerogative, responsibility, jurisdiction to teach in the name of Jesus, to form disciples in the name of Jesus, and to be the body of Christ, the image of God's glory on earth. It is given to the church and the church alone to do that. If the, now the government is also instituted by God, the government has a different jurisdiction and a different mandate. Romans 13, it's a mandate to uphold order, punish the evildoer, uphold a rough form of justice and peace. That's about all. If you allow Caesar to start teaching the Bible, well, you're again, you're outsourcing the church's role to Caesar. Do you really trust Caesar to get it right? Yeah. He basically never has. You, you never can control what Caesar's going to say when he takes the Bible and starts representing what he wants the Bible to say instead of what it actually says. Um, and, and you're, you're, how do I put it? I don't know how to say this any more clearly. We're, we're, we're loosing the reins of what we Christians should, should be doing and handing it over to Caesar. I think it's just very foolish to do that. Mm. Yeah. And it, and this, this isn't quite, um, you know, maybe a one-to-one -one comparison, but just as you were talking to me about it, of like the intermixing of government and power and religion is like, that's what led to like a lot of the crusades as well. Like just, um, I'm reading this book right now, uh, called bullies and saints. And it looks at, um, the, the good and, and the, the evil that has been done in the name of Christianity. And that's just what it reminded me of is like, you get people going like, yep, you can have your salvation if you go kill these people or eliminate right. these people. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the political manipulation of religious sentiment is as old as human civilization. It's not unique to Christianity or the West. Every, Country does it. Um, they either try to stamp out religion, replace religion, or manipulate religion. It's just it's the story of human civilization. Um, I want to maybe. Okay, so the, I, I'm going to both sides this. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> because I think there's plainly ways that the right does this kind of manipulation. Yeah. Uh, but look, just the other day, you know, we're talking on Friday um, in late August, right after the student loan forgiveness thing. And I saw people on Twitter literally citing the Lord's Prayer where he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors as a proof text for why we should support student loan forgiveness. That's not what Jesus meant. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I feel very confident in saying that's a misapplication of the biblical text to support a political program. I, I absolutely think mm -hmm. that is a that is a mishandling of scripture uh, by a for a political agenda. Now, I'm saying this because I I think. The student loan forgiveness is a bad idea. I also think it's a mishandling of scripture. And that's an, that's a, that's an example on the left. Yeah. But we know the right does it too. The right mishandles scripture to support rightward-leaning political programs all the time. Uh, so this is, you know, I think it's more common on the right, but look, everybody does it. And, and Christians 
we should protect the word of God from this kind of abuse and manipulation and stand up and say, look, I believe the Bible is God's word. It's his truth. We should protect it from that kind of abuse. Hmm. Yeah. Are there, are there like common themes and stuff that you see that, Hey, whenever, whenever the left or the right is tending to manipulate scripture or to get God on our side, like, does it, does it look similar to, or like, are there, are there things that you can go, yeah, this is, this is what you should look for in terms of them manipulating on either side. I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say that it is always self-interested and tends to increase the power of the one making the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Never believe in the disinterested impartiality of anybody in the public square. So if they come to you with an argument and says, your religion requires you to support my agenda, just pause a minute and recognize that they are not an authority on your religion. Your pastor is. And so go check with your pastor or your fellow congregants or your friends and family who share your faith and check with them and say, what do you think our religion requires in the public square? Because this person over here says, I have to support his agenda as a Christian. Is that true? Uh, That's, I think, maybe a good instinctive response. Don't trust the religious authority or expertise of anybody with a political agenda. Hmm. I, I, I do want to say yeah. Christianity does, does have political implications, yeah. right? I, yep. I'm not being a quietist or an agnostic about this. I think Christianity does have political implications, but the, but we should learn about those political implications, not from the political actors out there who would benefit from our support. Hmm. Yeah. And I, like, I, I know that there's also some cases to where, um, and unfortunately, it is pastors who who have you know fallen into a Christian nationalism as well. And so, is it just the kind of looking for the same stuff? Like, let's say that you're like, okay, I'm not sure if my pastor might be um, might be uh, falling prey to Christian nationalism as well. Do you kind of look for the same stuff for the as you were mentioning for the political scene, or is it different, or what? This is a, this is a tricky one. Um, yeah. So you're asking if. If you're sitting in a church and you're wondering about the direction of your church and you're worried about perhaps your pastor or your elders. Yeah, oh, that, th- that and even like what you were saying of like going going to somebody and going like, hey, I heard this thing and I'm and looking for guidance while also trying not to um, like I'm always a fan of like I don't like people giving up their ability to think for themselves, too. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Like, hey, I hear this thing. I go talk with my pastor about it. But how do you, what do you look for to go, okay, I, is, is that making sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I want to be very careful in how I answer this because I think for many uh, churches, many Americans, many Christians, our main problem is that we don't recognize our church's authority enough mm-hmm. and that, and that we all probably need a bigger dose of submission to our elders, submission to our pastors, priests, whatever your denomination, and recognition of their authority over our lives. At the same time, we are told in scripture to examine closely the teaching and to call out false teachers. And I think that we actually have an individual responsibility to keep a very close watch over our leaders, our churches, and the doctrine they are teaching and to leave a church if necessary. Okay, so I, that was the first thing I wanted to be careful to say. Yeah. I want to affirm pastoral authority, yep. but also our responsibility to, to keep a watch on them. Now, if you're in a church and you are kind of wondering, you know, here's a few warning signs. Um, it's a very common practice in American Christianity, especially white American Christianity, to see Second Chronicles 7.14 or Psalm 33.12 used around American patriotic holidays. Mm -hmm. Those are the verses that say, if my people who are called by my name, or Psalm 33, 12 is the one, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If you see those verses deployed in your church around an American patriotic holiday in ways that imply or suggest that America is the people called by God's name, or America is the nation whose God is the Lord, I'd say that's a pretty big warning sign. Because those verses don't apply to America. We know that, right? They apply in the Old Testament to Israel. In the New Testament, they apply to the church. The church is the true Christian nation. So there's one possible warning Mm -hmm. sign. Here's another one. 
I think it's okay for pastors to talk politics from the pulpit, right? The main problem, I don't want quietist pastors. Yeah. But if, you're, if your pastor only ever preaches about the virtues of one side and the vices of the other, if they're just consistently bashing critical race theory and gay marriage and Biden's tax plan, and they never say anything about the sins on the right, that would be another warning sign. And by the way, it's true in the other reverse, right? If they're yeah. only singing the praises of the left and bashing the right. Um, that's another pretty big warning sign that, you, that your your church leadership has been captive by a partisan mindset. And partisan mindset is actually the opposite of true political wisdom, mm. right? We should not be tribal partisans. Yeah. Um, and I, I hate to even, here's number three, I hate to go here. It, it, it's too obvious, but... I think it has to be said, if your church, and there are churches out there, are hosting political rallies for Donald Trump, <laughs> that's a pretty big warning sign. Yeah. And there are churches out there doing that. Now, I don't know if your listeners are in that camp or going to those churches. They might be offended by my saying that. But I think uh, we should recognize that um, there's a certain level of enthusiasm, enthusiastic support for Trump that is... Uh, almost invincibly unable to hear any rebuke. And that mm. is associated with some churches out there that we need to be very, we need to stay away from. Yeah. Well, and I think that's even, um, even the thing of going like, it is easy to go. Yep. If, if, if you are, if your church is hosting a political rally or if, or if you feel like your person is above, or if you feel like uh, Trump is above rebuke, but that's true for the other side too, or for any other candidate as well. As yeah, well, I know. Yeah. I know that it's it could be a little bit more extreme with with Trump too. Yeah, but, and, um, and and that's what I that's what I'd emphasize. Look, it's, yeah. we can both sides this all day, yeah. but in my view, the greater problem yeah. for American Christian for white American Christianity today is on the right. Right. Yeah. Uh, we, and I say that in full knowledge of the cultural hostility that Christianity uh, endures from the left and in secular institutions. I've lived my life in that world. Um, but that, it doesn't wear the mask of Christianity, right? The yeah. problem I, I really worry about is that this phenomenon on the, on the right pretends to be Christian and uses a Christian language. And I'm afraid it deceives many Christians because it wears that mask and speaks that language. And that's uh, that deceptiveness that really worries me. Mm. Nobody's confused about the nature of the far, far progressive left. <laughs> yeah. 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 Can you talk about just dealing with that, dealing with that deception or that that falseness of of wearing the mask of Christianity, or um, just I, I, I don't know because I I know that they wouldn't say that they're pretending to be Christians, but it it is right. not very Christ like. And again, and again, I this is a conversation that requires so much care and nuance yeah. because I don't want to cause needless offense. I don't want to offend. I don't want to cast aspersion or slander. Yeah. Um, and I also don't know the true state of anyone's heart. Yeah. And I also know that there are many people of good conscience and good faith who who are deeply committed to kind of right word political causes, who believe that that's the path to justice and flourishing and have made a kind of a transactional bargain that they're going to support Trump because they think it's the only way to push back on the progressive left. Mm -hmm. I understand all that. Um, in, in my view, there's the transactional case put that aside that's why earlier i talked about the enthusiasm on the right there is a camp on the right that is not just skeptically transactionally supporting trump but that is uh, very enthusiastic uh that that seems to believe that this movement the maga movement is the one possible path to american renewal whatever Mm -hmm. And I'm cannot convey strongly enough the urgency with which I am deeply troubled by that movement. Uh, I think it is accurate to call it uh, an extremist movement. I think we've seen some examples of political violence emanating from that movement. I would put January 6th in that category. I Perhaps we can talk more about that. Yeah. Um, I found that I paid much more attention to January 6th because I live right outside DC than many people in the country. And I think there's a popular view of January 6th that I'd love to correct. Yeah. Uh, but even just 
a few weeks ago, right after the Mar-a-Lago raid, the MAGA right went crazy and, and a guy took a gun and tried to shoot up an FBI office. I'm afraid that we are in a situation where that kind of thing may become more frequent. Yeah, talk to me about January 6th and kind of like the the, the theory or the popular theory that you're seeing out there and what you'd like yeah. to correct about it. Um, I've heard, uh, so again, I, I live in the Washington, D.C. bubble, more or less. Yeah. But I um, have opportunity to have conversations outside the bubble here and there. And I've tried to ask, right, over the last year and a half. And it seems that many people look at January 6th and they think that it wasn't a good thing, but it also wasn't a very big deal. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like a protest that got a little bit out of hand. And uh, nobody nobody's celebrating that it got out of hand, but they're bothered by what they think is this witch hunt with the January 6th commission. Mm -hmm. um, and they think that uh, the, the commission and people like me are making too big a deal uh, about it. Um, so I, I, here's how I'd push back on that. Yeah. Um, January 6th was an act of premeditated political violence by a small number of people who successfully whipped up a mob and used and manipulated that mob into a violent act of storming a federal building, injuring, wounding, and coming close to killing 150 police officers in order to halt the constitutional transfer of power and stop the U.S. Constitution from operating. When you use political violence to intimidate a government, we have a word for that. The word is terrorism. Mm -hmm. Now, I, you know, there was a quarter million people on the mall that day, and I'm not saying that they all participated in an act of terrorism. There's about 8,000 who converged on the Capitol. Not even all of them are guilty of terrorism. There was about 1,000 or so that actually made it into the building of whom the, the, the front line were the violent ones. Mm -hmm. That's who I'm saying were terrorists who manipulated a mob into participating in that bigger act. That's how I see January 6th, and I think it deserves every bit of scrutiny the commission is giving it because a, an attempted terrorist attack to essentially overturn the U.S. Constitution and an American election hasn't happened since 1861. Um, and we should be deeply, deeply concerned about this. Now, how does this relate to Christian nationalism? Uh, you know, we saw a lot of things on display on January 6th. There was a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of QAnon stuff. The whole stop the steal election denialism is another conspiracy theory. There was some white nationalism on display, the Confederate flags, and uh, a lot of the rioters were yelling racial insults at the African-American police officers. But there was also Christian nationalism on display, uh, playing worship music, erected a cross in the Capitol grounds, uh, carrying a Christian flag. Famously, they stopped to pray on the floor of the U.S. Senate. I think it was the Senate. And they, it was a very, <laughs> you, there's a video of this on YouTube. You can Google it. They, they stop the, and they say, everybody take off your hats, we're going to pray. And one and somebody shouts and says, and Jesus, we invoke your name. And they pray this prayer about, thank you, God, for, for, for a rebirth for America, because this is our country in Jesus' name, amen. That's how clear it was that they saw their act as an act of Christian piety. They invoked Jesus' name to bless an attempted terrorist attack to overturn democracy. That's how big a deal this is. And I think Christians should be deeply offended that they use Jesus's name for this. I think American citizens should be deeply offended that they tried to stop an election uh, from, from transferring power. Uh, like I said, I just don't have words strong enough to convey how urgently I feel this is a big deal. Yeah, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on like what's behind maybe us taking not taking it as seriously as, as it as it was. Um, you mean January 6th specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, in part because it failed. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a fairly incompetent. It was, you know, badly organized. And um, sadly, one person did die. But it, it, uh, it didn't kill a large number of people. And it looked buffoonish. 
And because of its incompetence, I think a lot of people have maybe shrugged their shoulders and said, no big deal. My response to that is, um, you know, be careful because January 6th might have been just a practice run. Mm -hmm. And the next time around won't be as incompetent. Uh, I think maybe also there's a sense that, uh, how do I put it? I think many people believe that it was spontaneous and they just simply have not kept up with the news as it's become evident through the research over the past year and a half that it was not spontaneous, it was premeditated, that there was planning and orchestration behind this, particularly by these groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. Um, they did this on purpose and they've been charged with seditious conspiracy. And I hope that they, you know, if the, if the evidence leads them there to convict them. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something I would very much stress. That's a big deal. If you are deliberately premeditatedly planning a seditious conspiracy to use political violence to intimidate your government, that's a big deal. Um, yes, they were pretty incompetent about it, but watch out. Be careful what you wish for because, you know, these kinds of groups have a, they exist in order to practice and get better. And I think that I would thoroughly expect as you know, my former career as an intelligence analyst, I would hypothesize that these groups are now studying January 6th to get better for the next time. Hmm. Can you talk about the role of like isolationism in this? Because even like going back to what we were talking about with, um, uh, with, with schools and, and getting back to where we were and, you know, people maybe wanting to pull their kids out of public schools or go to a private school or homeschooling and, and, and all of that it just got me thinking about isolationism of how that could be, in this and then also um like that's maybe like a smaller example of it but just isolated from everybody else who doesn't hold the view of christian nationalism but can you talk about the role of that in this so when you say isolationism you mean this uh, you're not talking about international foreign no, policy not international. Yeah, yeah. yeah not Got internationally it. sort of sort of ghettoization um mm -hmm. where christians kind of withdraw from the culture yeah yeah, the Benedict Option, right? So uh, Rod Dreher's book from some years ago saying we should just essentially give up on American society, American institutions, withdraw, build our own parallel institutions and hunker down for the fall of civilization. Um, yeah, I, I, I struggle with this. Um, yeah. I, I have sometimes felt great sympathy with this view. I do think theologically it is probably wrong because it... Uh, it's sort of the sin of despair in a sense. And I think that we always should try to cultivate hope um, and recognize that there's nothing in history that's impossible and nothing is inevitable. Um, there's a great book out there by James Davidson Hunter called To Change the World. And it's a review sort of of Christian efforts to so-called take back the country and a critique of the methods of doing so. And he concludes that book by calling for what he calls faithful presence, hmm. right? What's the famous verse in Jeremiah we all know? Uh, Seek the welfare of the city. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what uh, Davison Hunter is getting at, that we should not try to withdraw and not try to take over. We should exist where we exist. We should cultivate the plot of land where we are. We should recognize that where we are is a gift and an ordinance from God and as a good patriot, we ought to be grateful for it and cultivate it to make it better and to hopefully, prayerfully, bring justice and flourishing for all within our realm, our neighborhood, um, not just for ourselves or our tribe. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pathway towards a hopeful Christian public engagement, and it doesn't require withdrawal. It doesn't require us to just give up on institutions, leave them forever, and try to build our own nor does it require us to militantly try to take over everything. We live amidst non-Christians who we're called to love, not treat as an enemy and not abandon and ignore. And so we should join hands with them where we can to try to build good institutions uh, and seek the welfare of the city. Yeah, I'd love to just hear more. You mentioned uh, your background as a veteran and even working for the government for uh, 10 years. And I'd just love to hear what are some of the things that you've that you've taken away from your experience in that that have helped um, shape just your thinking as it pertains to good political engagement and even just around um, nationalism as well. Well, one way is that 
<laughs> gives me a great skepticism about what government is able to accomplish. Mm. It strikes me that nationalism is actually strikingly optimistic that they can use government to re-engineer American culture and, and re-Christianize American culture. I don't think government can do that. Whether it should or shouldn't, I don't think yeah. it can. You know, our government can barely deliver the mail. So what makes you think that our government is has the competence, the, the capability of this grand nationalist program you have? Uh, working for the government for 10 years, by the way, also leads me to uh, disbelieve in every conspiracy theory because we are incapable of keeping secrets. <laughs> it, it, I, I had the highest security clearance in the government. We can't keep any secret. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're incompetent at protecting information and incompetent at doing anything large. Um, so that makes me very skeptical about the nationalist program and the progressive program as well. Mm -hmm. it, it makes me more instinctively libertarian in some respects. Um, so that's one way I think it's made me better at this. The other way is, look, you know, my PhD is in international relations and I spent 10 years working on kind of world affairs. And that has given me a different context for thinking about these sorts of developments. Hmm. The resurgence of nationalism in America isn't unique. It's been happening all over the world. There's been a resurgence of nationalism throughout much of the world, not even just the Western world, but most of the world generally. Uh, and and there's structural reasons for that, the financial crisis, um, globalization and, and international trade, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, you know, there's other things going on. Trump isn't wholly unique. There are other figures kind of like him uh, in the world. And that should give us a little bit of humility that, you know, it ain't all just about us. Yeah. It also means we can learn a little bit about the course of movements like this, which is why I keep coming back to how alarmed I am. One of the possible courses a movement could take is further and further extremism and violence. And that has happened in other countries. And uh, I just, you know, I, I fear that we may be trending that way. Yeah. Can you talk to me about because it's as you were said. Like, so the government isn't necessarily able to do like a lot of these big changes that we're talking about. You know, it starts, you know, us engaging politically, you know, locally, and then even just figuring out how we can increase things from there. So what can like the average person do to help like not go down that path of extremism and towards, you know, more, you know, just inevitable violence? Yeah, I, I keep getting questions like this, like, what do we do now? Yeah, and yeah. I, I wish I had the 10-step program. Um, a lot of the answers I have are pretty trite, but they're still true. You know, engage locally, love your neighbors, read your Bible, go to church, uh, keep an eye on your, you know, your, your church leaders, make sure it's on the straight and narrow. Um, maybe some of the more practical things you all can do is basically get off social media uh, don't, or, or maybe not get off completely, but don't yeah. use social media for political engagement. Don't confuse them. Arguing about politics over Facebook is the perfect way to radicalize yourself. There's actually studies done on this oh, yeah. about how the impact that it has on your thinking. Uh, so don't, if you're, if you're on Facebook, don't use it to argue politics. Don't share the articles use it as a way to love people and click like on their baby pictures and, and, and what they cooked for dinner or whatever. But it's just not a, a wise or effective way of talking about politics, engaging about politics, and it's no substitute for real political action. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, but I've had to uh, really kind of keep a rule for myself. I don't use it to in interact with people. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I share my writing. Sometimes I share, you know, funny stories about my kids, but that's about it. I, I try not to go much further than that. And I don't go back and forth with people there. Um, so social media would be one thing. Uh, look, I'd say turn off the TV. If you want to be informed, as all citizens should be, do it through uh, the written medium. Uh, find a good newspaper, find a good magazine. Um, that is a more reliable way, no matter what their bias is, it is simply more cerebral, more, more, there's more content than what you're getting on the TV, regardless of what the bias is. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd say, you know, there's another tip for you is more reading and less watching. Yeah. Well, that even makes me think of things like Substack that are happening right now, which are, yeah. which are making it easier. It is a digital form, but there's not, um, uh, there just isn't, a, there, there could be less censorship in that. Yeah, no, I, I think 
I think generally that's a good, I think podcasts are a good development. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of thousand flowers bloom. Um, I will say if you're, if your information intake is from a lot of blogs and podcasts, make sure that they don't all agree with each other. Right. Yeah. Cause if you're just getting, then you're living in an echo chamber and that can be extremely unhealthy intellectually and spiritually. Hmm. So get a varied diet, you know, that's, that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, I got two other things I want to ask you about, and I know that we've covered a ton of stuff yeah. just in this conversation, but there's there just anything top of mind that, um, in regards to anything that we've talked about or anything that you're just thinking about that you want to make sure that we cover. Uh, I, thanks for the question. I, nothing is coming to mind immediately. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate the questions you've asked and the chance to sit here and rant on my uh, soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Um, one thing that I would love you to to tease, just as I was preparing for it, um, and I can't remember if I if I read it in um, if I read it in your book or I was just listening to another another interview and you were talking about it, but this is the plan of uh, future books, kind of like in, in a little right. bit of a series or a trilogy. Can you kind of tease out what what to expect in that? Yeah, so I, I write about this a little bit in the preface uh, to the nationalism book. How when I first started working on it, I wanted it to be a a grander argument. Uh, part one is about the the sins of the right. Part two is the sins of the left. And part three is some sort of, you know, political theology, you know, how should Christians think about politics? And as I got into part one, it became its own book. Uh, it, be, it just grew and grew and grew and became its own book. So there are two more parts of the argument. And, and the next book mm -hmm. um, is on the progressive left. And by the way, I'm happy to share that yeah. uh, indeed the, pub the publisher gave me the contract. So I will be working on these books over the next five, six years yeah. <laughs> uh, or, or sooner or later. Um, and so I'm going to, I am working on a, uh, on this book on the progressive left tentatively titled the working title, uh, is the religion of American progress. What's wrong with the progressive left? Uh, because as much of a critique I have of the right, it has not turned me into a progressive or a leftist. And there's mm. serious problems with the way the left thinks about politics. Lots of Christians know that I think instinctively. Um, then again, younger, I've, I've found that younger Christians, a lot of millennials and younger they don't immediately assume the left is all bad. And they're very curious about things like socialism or the Green New Deal. It doesn't have the same instinctive bad atmosphere that it does for, I think, older generations. So so the book may be helpful in that regard. And then volume three is something about Christian uh, republicanism or Christian democracy or something like that. Uh, give me a Give me a bit of time uh, to, to develop that <laughs> argument. It's out there. Uh, that's my return of the king, and it'll come out someday. Mm. Yeah. Um, just as you were saying that, it made me think of, can you maybe like tease out or talk about, like, because I imagine there could be a tendency in the right to look at the left and go, we are so much better than them. And there's probably a tendency in that. Well, I know that there's a tendency for the left to go, we are so much better than the right. And what might be like just a word of caution to the right and to the left of, hey, be careful. Do not become too prideful. Be be wary in in this area. I, I think you've said it very well yourself just there, um, mm -hmm. is the need to be humble and be careful. I've heard a lot um, that some of the momentum for the MAGA movement comes from this grievance of those who are left behind, the white working class, who are neglected by our institutions and all that. I get that there's some legitimate grievance there, but the idea that your grievance sanctifies your movement or trumps all other considerations is a dangerous idea mm -hmm. because you know what? We've all got grievances. I've got my grievance against them, <laughs> but does that mean I get to use it as a way to justify uh, being condescending, being proud, proudful or, or arrogant? Um, no, it doesn't. I think that, I think that we're always called to, act in love, not fear, um, and let our words always be gracious. Uh, so that would be maybe the word of caution I offer. Even when you're hurting, hmm. as many of us are, that's not the right place to start your thinking about politics. Hmm. And last thing I want to ask you is, what, help, what helps you keep going? What helps you continue to remain invested? Because I know that there's, it's got to be discouraging 
on days or even just seeing like what's ha- what's happening in our country and just going like oh man i you see the potential and we wish we were better what helps you keep going in the midst of all of that uh, yes it can be discouraging sometimes yeah uh and um conversations like this help uh and, and spe- uh, let me speak on behalf of all writers everywhere we really appreciate the feedback yeah. The loving, positive, constructive feedback, not the hate mail. Uh, and yeah, we all get the hate mail. So if you've read something that was edifying for you, reach out, shoot an email and, and say, hey, I read your thing. I really liked it. Made me think uh, it was challenging. Made me think differently about something. That's really helpful and encouraging to, to writers everywhere. So um, l- uh, let me encourage your listeners to do that. It's also helpful to remember that, uh, you know, we are citizens of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. This is not our ultimate home. Um, as much as I love America, uh, this too shall pass. And and I, and I love the kingdom of God more. Um, so that's, I don't mean that, I don't mean that as a sort of like a hands-off kind of apathetic yeah. thing. Again, faithful presence, love the city where you are. Um, but I, but I also know that there's a grander scheme here at work. Um, so yeah, there's, there's where I am, but uh, it's an important question. Yeah. Well, Paul, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, The Religion of American Greatness, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Uh, I'm a hypocrite. Having just told people to get off social media, you can find <laughs> me on Twitter yeah. at uh, Paul D. Miller 2, Paul D. Miller 2. And again, I, I'll post my latest writing uh, or I'll advertise the book or tweet funny things about Star Wars or my kids. <laughs> um, and I, I do have a website, pauldavidmiller.com. Uh, where I, again, I post some recent writings and things like that. So I appreciate that. Caleb, I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the chance to come and talk on the show and best of luck to you and to your listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much. And just again, thanks for being on the podcast and thanks for just doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thank you. There's so many different things, so many different aspects of this conversation that we, that I, that I could talk about, but I think one, the, I only want to talk about one thing in this outro and it's simply this is that anytime that there is complexity, it is critical that we have humility. There's a strong tendency and I think of all of us to try to make things simple, to try to understand them. And often we do that by simplifying some of these ideas. And that also is how our brain works. Our brain tries to conserve energy. And so we try to find repeatable patterns. We try to make things simple so it's easier for us to understand. And in discussions around things such as we talked about today on the podcast of Christian nationalism, it can be very easy to simplify the conversation. It can be very easy to make it a little bit more simplistic than it actually is. And sometimes what that can look like is just simply saying, well, it's wrong to have um, any appreciation for any nation, or it's easy to go, you know, all of our country is good, or all of our country is bad, or there's nothing wrong with our country, or everything is wrong with our country, or all Republicans are good, or all Republicans are bad, or everybody on the left is evil, and everybody on the right is evil, or vice versa, that all of the left is good, all of the the right is good, that progressivism is bad, or that progressivism is good, or that conservatism is good, or that conservatism is bad. And in reality, it's much more complicated than that. It's much more complex than that. It's much more nuanced than that. And it's important for us not to give up that nuance. It's important for us to not give up that that complexity. Because in it, we learn so much about ourselves, about the people around us, and we can learn a lot about God in that as well. But it requires that we have humility and that we choose not to forsake the complexity for an easier path. That we choose the path of humility, even though it requires much from us. So, 
I would just encourage all of us to just choose the path of humility, engage in whatever you found resistance to in this conversation. Dig a little bit deeper. Find something else that you can learn from. Get Paul's book. Explore another view, whatever that might look like. If you're looking for some recommendations of things to learn from the best thing, or one of the best things you could do is subscribe to my newsletter. I'm constantly giving recommendations, resources about things that I don't even necessarily agree with, but they're things that are making me think because I don't want to give up that complexity because it's in that, that handling complexity with humility can often lead to greater maturity. And so with that, I want to say thank you to Paul for being on the podcast today. Thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.